Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So uh, just a, a preview of next week. Next week uh, on Sunday is uh, Easter Sunday, and I'm going to be away, and Michael's going to be away. But we're still going to have a show because Matt Tamanini's coming in, and we'll be uh, hosting next week, uh, as well as Jan Simpson is going to come in and take Michael's seat, keep it warm for a week. <laughs> but, uh, but we're also excited to have Jan in because Jan's newest episode of All the Drama is now available to Patreon supporters. And this month, uh, Jan talks about the 1922 Pulitzer winner, Anna Christie. And uh, it marks the second anniversary of All the Drama uh, and her second uh, recap of Eugene O'Neill's uh, second uh, play that of his four that won Pulitzer's. So the uh, All the Drama is now available to Patreon supporters and are going to be available to the general public next Saturday, April 8th. And Jan's going to be on Sunday, April 9th. And uh, so it'll be Matt and Peter and Jan next week. So first up, Peter and Michael got over to see Life of Pi, this uh, transfer from England that went to Cambridge in uh, American Repertory Theater, then down the East Coast to Broadway. Peter, why don't you get us started on Life of Pi? Well, um, it's uh, been a long journey for this show. Because first it was a novel by Jan Mattel, and then Lolita Chakrabarti uh, decided to make it into a play. And it's also been a movie as well, so you may be very familiar with it. Now, if you are familiar with the um, novel or the movie, you know that this is the story of... Um, young man who was uh, on a ship uh, the ship got wrecked and there he is he's um, on a raft and for 227 days he has to survive before he's rescued the problem is there are a lot of animals that uh, also make their appearance in the show and as a result some of those animals are very threatening would you like to share a space with a tiger i don't think so neither does he so can a person who's on a lifeboat really survive for 227 days with a tiger who must get awfully hungry during that period of time and um, and who's looking at his meal well um 
when he is rescued, there are people who are interviewing him uh, to find out what the real story is. I mean, this can't be true, can it? I mean, and so certainly of the two interviewers, one's male, one's female, uh, the male is very skeptical of the story. And um, he really is not inclined to, uh, well, let's put it this way. If he were a prosecutor, um, he would not believe in that you're innocent until proved guilty. He, He really feels this gentleman is guilty of telling a true tall tale. So that is the big problem. Uh, whether or not uh, he's going to be believed. And the point of the play seems to be that um, people believe what they want to believe, which is some something certainly we're experiencing in America right now, that people do indeed believe what they want to believe as opposed to um, <laughs> looking at what seem to be facts and who knows what facts are anymore. So in a way, this is a play for our times, in a way. All right. The animals are represented by um, large scale. To say puppets is really not doing them justice, uh, but um, certainly the tiger is uh, life-sized. And so three people have to um, manipulate it. And Hmm. believe me, there is a lot of manipulation going on here with all these um, puppeteers. There are plenty of them. Uh, This has one of the biggest casts of a play in recent memory because you have so many people doing this, uh, running around and uh, pretending to be the animals. So, And by the way, um, in terms of uh, (laughs) animals and running around, uh, the gentleman who plays Pi, uh, Hiran Abisikera, um, certainly gets tossed and turned. And this is a performance of endurance as much as skill. <laughs> He's a very fine actor. He does this extraordinarily well. It's an amazing journey that this actor must take, not only from the vantage point of delivering lines and um, being convincing, but also just being tossed and turned. It's it's extraordinary, extraordinary to watch. No question about that. However, for me, the big problem the show was that the um, set, which is simply a, a distressed-looking white grayish flat representing the hospital. I mean, it's fine representing a hospital. And the um, performers who are playing the puppet manipulators a very, very obvious there. I mean, I had this problem with King Kong, too, that, you know, you can see the people running King Kong. This play would have profited tremendously with a black wall and puppeteers dressed in Bunraku style, all black, head to toe. And really, watching against a black background would have helped immeasurably in making the animals look as if they were truly animals and not puppets being manipulated by three or four people or two people or one person. So, um, as impressive as Life of Pi is at the moment in the way that it has been uh, conceived, and, and of course, we must give tremendous credit as well to the director, Max Webster, the fact remains that visually, I think it would be so much better with a black background and uh, Bunraku uh, uh, costume people. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say something else. Um, some people get disgusted easily or don't like certain things involving, um, well, let's say just, I don't want to be a spoiler here to the nth degree, but I do want to warn people that there's an image that really makes the audience 
groan in horror. <laughs> and I, I will put it that way. So if you are easily disgusted, you have to watch out for something that happens in Act 2 because it may be um, the most disgusting thing you have ever seen. Um, I will say that if you know The Night of the Iguana, there's a passing reference to it. Um, but as we always know in drama, it's more potent to show rather than tell. In Night of the Iguana, it is told. In this show, it is shown. And um, it, it, uh, it, it will upset some stomachs. Let's put it that way. But, but um, we certainly have a Tony-winning contender here, um, both in play and performance. It may not happen. You know, a lot of people say that statue's got his name written all over it. And then, of course, that statue doesn't have his name written all over it. But this is going to be a very hard performance to beat. And this play is going to be very hard to beat, too. Okay. Uh, Michael, what did you think? Well, first of all, as far as that disgusting moment that uh, Peter mentioned, the thing to me is that it really did not seem necessary. I mean, I didn't think it was essential to the story. So I'm surprised they included it. Um, and I guess they must have known it would have that effect on the audience. And that's the effect they wanted to have. But I agree with you there. And I, I don't understand why it was there because I didn't really think that it was important. Um, the puppetry in this show, uh, both the design and the execution is absolutely amazing. Um, uh, others have pointed out we, we've we've had some great puppetry on Broadway. Fairly recently, we had Milky White uh, in Into the Woods, and then there were those amazing dinosaur puppets, etc., in uh, Skin of Our Teeth at Lincoln Center, and then of course going back further, there was War Horse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but these are really the equivalent, and I, I understand your point. Um, Peter about the the Bunraku, uh, but I, you know, I I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I imagine it, it it would have been difficult to have those people completely disappear anyway. And I guess they felt they wanted to have the rest of the lighting and scenic effects, so that's why they did that. Um, I you know I I didn't have that much of a problem focusing on the puppet rather than the the um, people working at them uh but I, I i see what you mean um also this show has the most amazing rain effect i've ever seen done only with lighting uh and sound and maybe possibly a wind machine but i don't even think there was that it was really just lighting and sound no actual rain um they they somehow managed to do some kind of an effect where you thought you literally saw water <laughs> uh, you know on, on the stage floor because of the way that the lighting was hitting it uh and that was really quite quite something so that's another thing they have going for them i um love the the puppetry and the uh the visuals of the show i i for me the acting was very very broad i would say too broad uh and maybe perhaps that's because the director max webster is uh maybe that's not his strong point uh but maybe that's exactly what they wanted uh, um i remember that i thought the acting in war horse was very very broad uh so maybe um 
when people direct these shows with puppets, maybe they feel that's how the acting needs to be in order to uh, be a, a, of a piece stylistically with the puppetry. Uh, uh, I personally don't respond to it. And I thought that, um, that the story would have been more effective if the acting was a little more realistic and less stentorian and, and very, very broad. So uh, that's just my opinion. Uh, I, um, uh, I was reminded of, uh, Peter was talking about the theme of the play, and I was reminded actually of that uh, play that we saw, Chester Bailey, with uh, Reed Burney and uh, his son Ephraim, which I think there's a similar theme there is that uh, trauma, uh, you know, people can develop defense mechanisms to deal with trauma. Uh, and I think that sort of is what we're led to believe is happening here, that this boy makes up this fantastical story um, because he, you know, he he was at sea for 227 days and somehow managed to survive it. And, you know, it's hard to imagine how traumatic that must be. Uh, but that there was something that confused me and, and maybe... I can ask this of you, Peter, without without this being a spoiler. So the um, the boy tells the fantastical story. Uh, those two people who were interviewing him, uh, especially the the male, uh, d- d- do not believe it. And then he after after the whole show is practically over, he says, "Well, do you want to hear another version of the story?" And then he tells <laughs> another one, and they keep saying, "Well, that the, but this version is without animals, except." Wasn't the tiger in that version also? He, <clears throat> well, it is hard to talk about this without being a spoiler, but um, the tiger is said to be something else entirely. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> there is another character that I think right. that we're supposed to be, yeah. The, but it was still portrayed as a tiger, so that was a little confusing as well. Um, uh, anyway, uh I I have to I have not seen the film, so I'm going to have to try mm-hmm. to catch up with it now and see uh, how it was done on screen. I understand it was, as one might imagine, since a tiger, etc., are involved. It was a tremendous amount of CGI, uh, but on, you know, on stage we don't have that. You have to do it just with your own ingenuity and puppetry and lighting the and sound <laughs> the hard way. <laughs> so, um, so I, uh, despite my reservations, I would highly recommend this show. Uh, the audience really seemed to enjoy it. They also seemed to be on the edge of their seats uh, throughout most of it, and it was great because there was um, very little if any uh, response and applause during the show, because there's no room for it. Mm. Uh, Mm. But then at the end, there was quite an ovation and it really seemed heartfelt. Uh, So I, I would, I would recommend it for that reason. I also think it's good for all ages, um, you know, perhaps with that disgusting moment uh, (laughs) (laughs) accepted. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The the other thing is that uh, this play may very well, um, be supporting the theme of one of my favorite Emily Dickinson poems. We never know how high we are till we are called to rise. And indeed, um, as unlikely as it may seem that a guy can get through 227 days of this, Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it, 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 we, sometimes we do rise to the occasion. Sometimes we surprise ourselves and really do um, extraordinary things where we didn't think we could. So maybe this is a, a play that really indicates the indomitability of the human spirit. Um, and I'd like to think that's what it is. Again, you have a choice at the end of the play to believe it happened or it didn't happen. Yeah, it's your choice. Right. And um and I'm going to um uh err on the side of uh thinking it could. Also another just brief point is that the boy tells the story, he finally tells the story to these two people interviewing him and he says I will tell you the story because when you hear it you will believe in oh, God. Right, in God, right. But yes. to me it's like well either version of the story, you know, I mean, could be argued as a <laughs> showing a belief in God because how anyone could survive for that long on the sea, uh, you know, is pretty incredible in, you know, whether there are an all these animals on the boat or not. <laughs> or not sure. uh, so, uh, so I didn't get that either. Uh, there was some of it that was quite confusing to me. Um, and I, and maybe I, I will see the film. Uh, maybe that will help me in that regard. Uh, just with some of the plot points. Uh, and then who knows, maybe I'll get to the book, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I did watch the movie before. I, I saw the play in London last year. Oh. So um, so I did watch the movie then. I haven't watched it since. But um, I, 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 it may have been CGI, but it didn't strike me that way. But it is more likely that it was CGI, I, I will admit. But um, all I can say, it didn't strike me that way. But well, apparently it was so good that it didn't strike you. That I mean, that's what everyone yeah, said. Yeah, right. But, right, but, they, yeah, but yeah, presumably they couldn't have a real tiger doing all that. <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so uh, what's interesting to me is to uh, look back at the original uh, movie uh, from a, from a business perspective uh, they had an original budget of $120 million for the movie, and it grossed $600 million worldwide. Mm. Uh, and uh, this was back in 2012, 2013. came out in November. So it was sort of a Thanksgiving through the end of the year type of thing. Plus, then it won all the accolades. Uh, but uh, I certainly didn't think of it as a $120 million movie and, 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 you know, thinking about it, although it is, you know, 10 plus years ago. Uh, but certainly, I, I guess that whoever decided to bring it to the stage did look at that $600 million <laughs> number for Worldwide and say, hey, this could have legs. But... Uh, Wow. Well, okay. Let's so. let's let's say that on a scale of four, you know, four stars, I would rank this three point one four one six. Very clever. <laughs> there is a there is a reference to that in the in the play. Mm. All right. So that is uh, Life of Pi at the Schoenfeld. Uh, and next up, last week, Peter talked about Sweeney Todd. This week, Michael got a chance to see it. So, Michael, what was your take on Sweeney Todd? Well, I should say from the beginning, I, I guess I've decided a while ago that this is one of my three favorite shows, three favorite musicals ever written. Uh, 
when people used to ask me back in the day what my favorite musical was, I always used to say I could only narrow it down to two, West Side Story and The King and I. Um, but then Sweeney Todd opened. <laughs> mm. uh, and, and I got to see, uh, in one of the most memorable nights of my life, I got to see the second performance of the original production after it opened on Broadway uh, at what was then the Eurus Theater. Um, so, uh, I mean, from the beginning, I I loved it. But it's the kind of show that the, the score is so beautiful and complex and so dense that um you and the and the the show in in general that you can keep finding new things in it um the way that the themes repeat and uh references back references to other things that happen because of what you're hearing the score and light motifs all of that stuff it's it's really an absolute, absolute masterpiece. Um, so I, I went into this production feeling that way about the show. Now, on the one hand, uh, you might say that biases me in favor of the show, uh, the production, because I love the show so much. But on the other hand, uh, I guess you might say um, that I might be more critical uh, if there were things I didn't like about it. Um, so I, I guess that evens out. <laughs> um, and I've seen so many different uh takes on the show and in, in so, at so many different scales uh i've seen it done the teeny todd broadway revival uh which was far smaller and, and more minimalist uh and with a much much smaller orchestra than the original uh then but then i've seen it done at city opera uh two uh, well, I think it was one production, but it was done several times over the years. Then it, I saw the production at the New York, the two productions at the New York Philharmonic, the one uh, quite a while back with George Hearn and Patti Lapone, and then the more recent one with uh, Bryn Terfel and Emma Thompson, etc. cetera. Um, then uh, the off-Broadway uh, production uh, the 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 one that was set in a a pie shop where they they reconfigured the Barra Street Theater to look like an actual pie shop, uh, and that was a wonderful minimalist take on it. And then of course I, I can't forget the John Doyle Broadway revival, which was another kettlefish completely because he um, you know he used the the the, the uh, performers playing playing uh musical instruments but also it was supposed to be uh the 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 concept was that the whole thing was taking place in an insane asylum and and uh the story was centered around toby who was one of the few people to survive <laughs> the uh you know the tragedy of the original story so um anyway uh i and i read a lot read and heard a lot about this production before I went. It's, there seemed to be quite a consensus. It seemed like many people fe felt that Josh Groban sang the ro title role beautifully, but that he didn't have the intensity or the scariness uh, uh, or the really superb acting ability uh, that's required and that was exhibited by people like Len Cariou and George Hearn and and others. Um, and, and then many people said that they felt that Annalee Ashford was uh, overplaying uh, tremendously uh, the comedy of the role of Mrs. Lovett. And, uh, and then also m many people seem to feel that the production was too, um, 
well, they called it Sweeney light in the sense that it wasn't uh, frightening and scary and, and dark like the, uh, the famous, famous original. Um, but then the, the professional reviews came out and some of those things were mentioned by some people, but, it, uh, but overall, I think the reaction was far more positive. And that's kind of the way I feel. I, I feel like whatever flaws there are here um, are outweighed by, by what's wonderful in the show, um, including the magnificent full orchestra and the, the whole musical excellence of the production. I think um, Annalie Ashford is quite brilliant in it. Uh, any any criticism that she's overplaying, uh, I think it's hard to make that criticism in view of the audience response because it's at an absolute love fest. She gets every single laugh in the show and some that I've never even heard before. Uh, and the ovation for her at the end was all, was was thrilling. Um, also, uh, I, I was I was thinking that uh, I mean I have no idea if she reads reviews, but if she is aware of any of this criticism that she's overplaying it, I I would tell her that when I interviewed Angela Lansbury, she told me to my face that uh, she recalled that she received some criticism for her performance as Mrs. Lovett, because many people felt that she was way too broad, but she said she purposely did that because she felt the comedy was necessary to, you know, to balance the, the blood and the horror and all the darkness of the story. So, um, so if, (laughs) if uh, anyone feels that Annalie Ashford is doing that. She she is in very good company with Angela Lansbury. Um, Josh Groban, I, I guess I would agree that he is not as intense uh, as previous Sweeney's and does not seem as haunted and is not as scary. Um, but I, it just uh, it, he he has those qualities enough that the the story still works and it's a, it's a different interpretation of the role. And I, I do think it's valid. Um, uh, Peter mentioned that he, uh, he didn't feel that Josh looked like someone who had been away at hard labor for 15 years. And, uh, and also that it was um, well, you know, that it's kind of hard to believe that no one recognizes this guy. Uh, But you know what? I think I hate to say it. I think that, points up a plot hole in Sweeney Todd because it's it's remotely credible I think it's within uh the suspension of disbelief to think that he might have changed so much that uh first of all Mrs. Lovett doesn't immediately recognize him and uh and neither do the judge nor the beetle uh nor Pirelli uh none of those people immediately recognize him uh but the problem is that when Sweeney comes back, uh, when he escapes somehow, uh, and he comes back to London, he goes right to the room where he where he used to live with his wife and his young child, and where he had his barber shop above Mrs. Lovett's pie shop. And so we're supposed to think that even though the Beadle and the Judge see this guy in the same place doing the same thing. 
that they still don't recognize him. And there are a couple of, um, I mean, at one point during the the show, the Beatles says to Todd, uh, your face seems familiar to me, but that's as far as they go. And, and Todd just kind of sloughs it off. Um, so I think that that's a, a sort of a plot hole that's necessary for the uh, melodrama uh, of this tale. Uh, and you either buy it or you don't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, suspend that disbelief just because i love love the show so much <laughs> well, I, I have to say that i have no problem believing that a judge who saw him at a trial 15 years earlier uh with one after the other coming in uh for uh, <laughs> many other would-be criminals or criminals or guilty or innocent people um it's not as if uh, they were friends or anything like that mm. i have no problem believing that he wouldn't recognize him and when Mrs. Lovett says, so it is you, Benjamin Barker, um, I guess uh, the the implication is she, she did know from the beginning, though now that you bring it up, I don't think it would be a bad idea if we saw a take, a reaction from her at the beginning indicating, oh, I think this is this guy, um, mm-hmm. and I've never seen that happen, but I think that would be a good idea um, to set up, uh, so it is you, Benjamin Barker. Um, but boy, I think it's a lot to expect that a judge and a Beatle um, would remember a case from 15 years ago. Well, I, I thought of that. And you could make that argument for the judge. Uh, but we we are told that the Beatle at least had visited the, uh, you know, the pie shop and the room above it where Todd and uh, Lucy lived with their child uh, because he uh, he came to try to seduce her to come to the judge's uh, lair. Uh, so that's another reason that's, uh, to me, that's a little bit too much because it's the same guy in the same place and he's a barber again. And we're supposed to think he looks that much different that he doesn't remember it. But I, I guess I see what you're saying. I, I guess mm-hmm. it's, um, I guess we're supposed to think that he was, that Todd was so unimportant to these yeah. people yeah, yeah. That, that they just don't register that. Um, anyway, um, I love this production. I think, um, uh, some people have, have, have complained that it's, uh, too, uh, that the set is too simple. I didn't think that at all, but I did think that, um, it looked very, very clean. Um, <laughs> the, the, the set and the costumes, which was not the case in the original. Um, and I think that, I think maybe that was a mistake. Um, I, I, uh, because somehow it, uh, seems more powerful when you're you get the idea that you're in this kind of horrible industrial london where everything is sooty and dark and 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 all this horrible stuff is happening so i think maybe they they might have rethought that um uh the sound uh i had heard that the sound of this production uh the amplification was an issue uh i think maybe they fixed a lot of it by the time i got there uh but there were a few places where uh i did miss a few lyrics or words um so uh you know i i think maybe that maybe it'll continue to get even better hopefully i thought the cast overall was excellent um oh by the way i did not see maria bilbao as joanna because she was out the night i went and and actually i almost did not get to see the show at all because um the press agents asked me to uh to return you know return my tickets and come on another night but i kind of begged them to go <laughs> just because i have so f- 
few opportunities to see it after this because I'm having shoulder surgery and, and other things hey, coming up. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so they kindly relented, and I was so so thrilled uh, because I I really loved it, and uh, I, uh, um, you know, I I I, I, I think that that the cast was was quite superb overall for me the the standouts were um pirelli played by nicholas christopher and the judge played by jamie jackson uh the beetle for me john rapson um i i didn't love his interpretation which was very very foppish one might also say uh you know uh very flamboyantly gay uh, but um, that's the way he chose to do it. Uh, also, uh, Gaten Matarazzo was really quite wonderful as Tobias. Um, Jordan Fisher as Anthony, I I, um, I liked him overall, but he it bothered me a little bit that he seemed to be singing in a pop style, uh, which I don't think is really that appropriate for this role of Anthony Hope in this very operatic musical um so i wish he had brought the vibrato in a little more often uh but other than that i i i just i loved it and the audience was enraptured and it's it just almost brought me to tears the way this uh this piece really has i think it's generally uh recognized as a masterpiece now by pretty much everyone uh and so whatever flaws there are in thomas kale's director thomas kale's production um i i think they're more than balanced by the pluses and i urge everyone to see this show if you can get a ticket (laughs) if you can get a ticket which is is interesting yeah Yeah. hard to get a ticket right now does Sweeney Todd exist after Josh Groban? Well, who knows? I mean, and and, and it certainly is not the kind of role that's easy to recast. Oh, you know, I mean, I mean not easy I to recast with someone who is a, a big name and also can sing it. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, right. Yeah. Right. So easy to recast with somebody who's going to sell tickets is, is one right. thing. I mean, that's what I meant. Yeah. Hundreds of people who can do that role oh yeah that's not what i meant yeah Yeah. um william michaels um (laughs) yeah they -hmm. could get him over from parade because he was one of the best sweeney todds i've ever seen when he did it at the pennsylvania shakespeare festival so yeah so uh, that's going to be interesting to see what happens uh if they you know wrap it up when Josh leaves the production or if they're going to try to make a go of it. Uh, I think that's the big question there. And I think we all, it's our duty and responsibility to mm-hmm. think of somebody who can go into that. <laughs> By the way, the Joanna I saw, uh, I couldn't find the slip for a moment, but it was Delaney Westfall and she was very lovely. She looked like Laura Linney. <laughs> oh, a young Laura Linney who could sing. <laughs> Okay, so it's uh, Sweeney um, over at the Lunt, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Peter, you headed over to the temporary space that the York is, is uh, using at the Theater at St. Jean's on 76th Street to see Vanity's the Musical. So tell us about this. 
Well, Vanities was a very long-running off-Broadway play in the late 70s, uh, dealing with three friends. Uh, We first meet them in high school in November of 1963. Uh, Those who know their history know what big event happened in November of 1963, and that, in fact, does happen during the first sequence in this play. But it's about three cheerleaders uh, at that point in time, Um, and uh, they're great friends. They've been friends forever. And uh, they fully expect they're going to be great friends as time goes on. But we next meet them uh, during their college years, and uh, they're just about to graduate. And we see that there are some cracks in the friendship, that uh, one of them is particularly frisky, and uh, the other two really aren't. And then we meet them sometime later. And uh, that's when the fur really does fly, when we really see that um, they have far less in common than they ever would have envisioned. And in fact, that um, there's been a terrible betrayal by one of them. Uh, So that was the original play. And um, boy, it ran for years off Broadway and it was terrific. Some years back, the uh, playwright, uh, Jack Hefner, decided it would make a good musical, and he enlisted uh, the very able um, David Kirschenbaum to write music and lyrics, which happened, and the show did get produced. But what was really nice is because time had passed, they added a new scene that took place in 1990. Uh, And I think the new scene is terrific. I really like it a lot. And um, it really makes the show end on a more pleasant note. I think it's very believable. Uh, what would happen in uh, after all the years that had passed. So I like that scene quite a bit, and it really gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling. So I like that quite a bit. Very good production here, no question about that. Will Palmer has done a very good job in directing. Um, there is some non-traditional casting here to the nth degree. Um, Jay Jones, who made quite an impression earlier this year, um, well, I guess last year, actually, <laughs> um, in Beauty and the Beast, down at the Olney Theater. You may have heard about her, Marsha Milgram Dog's production down there. Um, again, a very atypical casting there, and even more so here. But she really um, is a tremendous talent. And if you can overlook the non-traditional casting element of it, you are, you are going to hear a tremendous voice and see a terrific performance. So, uh, Amy Kume, um is uh, very, very fine um, as the more benign of, of the three uh, girls. And Haley Potchen, uh, whom we've known quite a bit from um, everything from Dolly, or Cheek to Cheek, um, which was done at the York, the um, Irving Berlin Hollywood musical that Barry Kleinbord did. So, uh, she's really very good as the very flippity-jibbity um character who uh, <laughs> uh certainly believes her life is going to turn out splendidly and finds out that it really doesn't turn out splendidly at all so uh it it may strike you as a play that didn't cry out for music um after all musicals are about big characters and big events and one will admit that these are not big characters and the events um though of course important to these people in their lives um are not big events um but it's a very pleasant show for much of the time. It's truthful. It certainly hits the bullseye when it needs to. But I'll tell you that that last scene really makes it all worthwhile. And you might even come out and give a friend you've been estranged from or you haven't been in contact with. Sometimes, you know, we have friendships that just um, disappear somehow. 
I hate the term petered out for obvious reasons, <laughs> but but nevertheless, yeah, it, 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 you may very well find yourself um, getting on the phone or doing an email to somebody you haven't spoken to in a long time. So vanities may ultimately not only entertain you, but do you some good, too, and your estranged friends some good, too. All right. So that is uh, Vanity's the Musical at the York. Uh, it's at the Theater at St. Jean's on 76th Street, and that is playing through April 22nd. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you got over to the music box to see Bob Fosse's Dancing, this uh, latest revival of this production. So tell us about it. Well, everyone is saying that this should be called Wayne Salento's Dancing. Mm. And I'm going to have to agree with that. Uh, for what it's worth, the credit on the title page of the Playbill says choreography by Bob Fosse, direction and musical staging by Wayne Salento. But I don't know. It seemed to me that maybe some of the actual choreography was Wayne Salento. Uh, at any rate, um, I'm, I'm, not sure why he got this assignment because Wayne Salento is someone who has been involved with great successes as a dancer, for example, a chorus line, and as a choreographer, uh, for example, Wicked. But his only <laughs> previous credit as a director on Broadway was a show called Dream, which was the Johnny Mercer musical, which was both a financial and an artistic flop uh so i'm not sure you know how he kind of talked himself into this job <laughs> and i have to say i'm sorry but it's really quite poorly done in terms of the structure of the show the whole concept of it um the way the numbers fit together or don't i don't think they build in a in a way or they're not they're not placed in a way that um, that the show seems to flow uh, in an exciting way. Uh, he, uh, um, Salento has decided to add the whole final section of this production, uh, which apparently is very different from the original. Um, uh, it, this final section of this production is, is excerpts from Big Deal, which was a big Bob Fosse mm -hmm. flop. Um, and also, on top of all that, um, there's a lot of talking. <laughs> uh, with with uh, I looked I looked through, and I didn't even see any credit uh, for who might have written these monologues and this little bit of dialogue that's in the show. So I don't know. I, I mean, I can understand why someone wouldn't want to take credit because it's all very clunky and obvious and. I don't think it added anything to this production. So I, I can't imagine why that decision was made. And then on top of all that, the weirdest thing about the show for me was this. Um, for example, at one point in act two, uh, they, we hear the Dolly Parton song, here you come again. Uh, and it's a production number and involving several of the female dancers. And suddenly they start doing, uh, dance moves from there's got to be something better than this from Sweet Charity. But they're doing them to the music of Here You Come Again. And believe it or not, one of them says, 
why don't we do that number, meaning there's got to be something better than this, and someone else replies, we couldn't get the rights. Now, really? (laughs) And then um, before that, I think we had seen uh, some moves from the rich man's frug, uh, some Fosse moves from the rich man's frug also from Sweet Charity performed to other music. And then after Here We Come Again, uh, suddenly um, uh, we start, we, we see a male and female couple come on and they do almost the entire brilliant Fosse dance uh, from, from this moment on, from the film of Kiss Me Kate, but again to different music than Cole Porter's from this moment on. So first of all, I'm not sure exactly what happened here. Does it mean that they could not get the rights to the the music by Cy Coleman and Cole Porter? Does it mean they didn't want to pay to use <laughs> that music? Uh, either way, I think, it, I think it was a huge, tremendous mistake. If they couldn't get the music or didn't want to pay for it, then I don't think they should have done that choreography. And I can't believe that Wayne Salento or anyone else would make a decision like that. I found that so weird that it, um, that it really was the tipping point for me for the entire production. And I really have to say that my reaction to it overall was very, very negative, despite the great talent of the dancers involved. So odd. Uh, uh, did you uh, do we know that for sure that that's a change from the original production? Uh, I don't know th- that about the the dance moves being done to different music. That I do not know. That's an yeah. excellent question. I can't believe that Bob Fosse would have done that. Um, but thank you for asking that because I'm going to have to see if I can research that. Might you know, might be all difficult. The other- yeah. All the other, uh, uh, you know, pr- press for the show, their focus on Wayne Salento was, you know, that he was recreating it because he was in the original production. Mm. Uh, so it, it's so odd that it seemed like it was, I, I haven't seen it. Obviously, I, I didn't see the original and I haven't right. seen this one yet. Uh, so I, I can't really speak to uh, anything other than all the press that I've seen ahead of time, but it seemed like it was, he was recreating, uh, restaging it from. Well, thank you for saying, I mean, I suppose it's conceivable that all of that was the same in the original production. And that was Bob Fosse's idea to do. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I wish I could find that out. It might be really it's, difficult it to seems research like such that. An, it seems like such an inside baseball comment to make that we couldn't get the rights. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't think the normal Broadway audience member would really understand or care. Uh, you know, that there are rights and things. I, you know, it just it seems mm. that's it seems such 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 a strange thing for them to yes. stick in the middle of this, unless it was this is how it was originally done. So, well, as I say, unfortunately, it might be really hard to research that yeah, because sure. uh, you would just have to go by people's memory. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm sure there wasn't a cast album, was there? <laughs> there no, uh, fil- in fact, film in, uh, at Lincoln Center, film and tape library? Or? Yeah, maybe. Well, that, that, that would seem to be, but no, there was no cast album and it makes sense on a certain level. Sure, because sure. Because after all, the show's called Dancing. On the other hand, there was a cast album for Fosse. 
right. which after all was much of the same. So, but I think that had more singing in it. Yeah, um, yeah. the um, Danson uh, has the uh, distinction of being the longest running musical that didn't have a cast album. Hmm. Oh, hmm. you go ruining more trivia questions. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is one of the questions in my upcoming book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Broadway is a rough trade. Yes, and that's it. It is a rough trade. So, Michael, you got over to the tank uh, to see, oh, a play called Rough Trade. <laughs> so, uh, tell us about this. Well, it's a rather intriguing title. Uh, <laughs> uh, this play by Kev Berry, directed by Alex Toby, uh, presented by The Tank in their space down on 36th Street. And um, there's a note by the playwright in the in the program that uh to me is maybe almost better written than the play <laughs> so i thought i would read it because it's find it quite interesting uh this play began at the end before i got sober i was at bottomless brunch with a bunch of vapid queens i'm no longer friends with because the only thing we had in common was loving moses i guess that means mimosas um during the meal we started arguing about god only knows what and things devolved quickly plates of waffles sponged up spilled drinks lethargic arguments lacking cogency were bandied about the check was paid with what I'm positive was a terrible tip because these drink, these drunk homos weren't exactly the brightest bunch. <laughs> uh, I don't remember who started the fight or how it resolved once we parted ways after slurring our words loudly on the sidewalk that afternoon, but I woke up uh, the next whatever and thought, huh? ever the eloquent playwright, I decided I would write a play where a drunk brunch would be the climax that would look at what it was really like to be a millennial gay New Yorker from the perspective of a millennial gay New Yorker. Uh, and then he goes on and on. Uh, this play was uh, hyper-realistic in the sense that everyone in it talked like people that I have known and observed and um every single gay bar in hell's kitchen <laughs> was name checked in this play uh, along with some other uh locations that gays might likely be found for example astoria because so many people live there because they've been priced out of manhattan uh and uh other locations throughout the city uh, i think the great talent of this playwright uh is is uh, his ability to write dialogue that really seems like real people would speak it uh but i'm not sure uh what the ultimate point of this play was i i guess he wanted to show the vapidity of so many of these people and also the um um the way that they treat each other uh very very badly uh uh, he says uh, he refers to homos who treat one another horribly, but who cling to one another like lifelines. And then he says in his in his uh, program note, fags who know how to wield a pop culture reference like a weapon. Nellies who can go from a kiki to a brawl and back in 10 seconds flat. So it's not a very um, flattering portrayal of these people. Uh and uh, I, I guess I guess that was the point. Uh, one thing the playwright did, which I I don't know why he made this decision, was he gives all of the characters uh, bird names. Uh, there are four characters. One is named Bunting, 
Another was named Hawk. Another is named Finch, like how to succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fourth one is named Cock. So um, I thought that was really precious and uh, and silly, especially because the dialogue is so, so photorealistic. Uh, and I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the deal is with that. Uh, all of these characters also, I mean, they're, they're, aside from being drunks, they all seem to be practically sex addicts. There's one scene where they go down uh, lists of all the dozens, uh, you know, scores of men that they've slept with. Um, and I thought, well, does Ed, did every one of them have to be like that? Uh, you know, maybe uh, if one of them had, had been a sex addict, that, that might have made the point. But if for all of them to be that way, is, isn't that a kind of a stereotype that we really maybe want to get away away from um and then uh the the reference in the program note to pop culture references there were hundreds of that those in this play and i think that is generally considered to be bad playwriting i mean it might be very enjoyable and funny in the moment but a play is not going to last if it's all about constant pop culture references whether gay or straight uh so um Again, uh, I think that the playwright has a lot of potential for his ability to write really excellent, realistic dialogue. But there were um, some major issues in this play as well. So I hope he uh, can move on from that and and address those in future efforts. All right. So that is Rough Trade at the Tank. It's playing through April 8th, so you have a couple of days left before that wraps up. Uh, Michael and Peter, did you, did either of you ever uh, get over to BAM to see... Uh, no, the sign in Sidney <laughs> Brewstein's window, yeah. which yeah. a friend of mine calls the sign in Danny Burstein's window. <laughs> 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 I did not see it. You didn't see I it, did. Peter? Yeah. You did? I think Peter. You, yeah, I think Peter talked about it. I think so too. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It was a while ago. You forgot. Yeah. No. No. Um, all right. So, uh, what else did I want to ask you about? Uh, you got uh, Michael. You said that your schedule's filling up. Uh, uh, have you seen everything that uh, up to? Right now, that's opening. I guess Camelot's left, or what's left here? Um, I have a few things. I, I left this week uh, empty because, I, as I mentioned, I'm having shoulder yeah. surgery. Shocked uh, in Fat Ham Camelot, Summer '76. Yeah, I haven't seen any uh, of those. Yeah, Prima Facie. What mm-hmm. we were supposed it's, to say that some sort of way was it Prima Facie or it's it's pr- pronounced Prima Facia, believe it or prima, not. Mm-hmm. But the press rep sent out an email about how they wanted us to pr- pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, oh, but, really? And it wasn't anything that I, 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 because prima facie is what I would have said. Oh, you're saying uh, it's not that? No, it's not. Let's see, it says here, uh, note to editor, suggested title pronunciation, prime uh, facie, pr- P-R-I-M-E-A-H. Faye, F-A-Y-S-E-E. Well, that's news to me. I used to work yeah. for lawyers. and that's oh. oh, no, no, absolutely. Oh. Oh. Well, wow. Amicus Amicus, mm-hmm. you know, I, lawyers can't decide what <laughs> Amicus and Amicus is. You know. uh, <laughs> that should be Amicus the musical. 
So, or uh, Amicus the Musical. Um, and then Goodnight Oscar, New York, New York, getting right. a lot of uh, buzz around town mm-hmm. for New York, New mm-hmm. York right now. Mm-hmm. So I guess mm-hmm. we do have a number of things left. Oh, sure. And it's I April. hear there's one more going to be announced. Oh, yeah? Well, not for this mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. For this season? Oh, yeah? No, oh, that's yeah. not possible. That's oh, yeah? what I'm saying. It All is right, not right. possible, but <laughs> it I'm may happen. Saying, huh? Okay, I'm thinking. All right. Well, you'll have to tell us after we stop recording. <laughs> I, I, I will. I will. I will say that when James James says something like that, it usually turns out to be true. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know how. Well, I mean, I while, while people connected with you, Jamson told me that there would never be any type of sale made to anybody or any kind. James was saying it's going to happen. It's going to happen, and it happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Marilyn May, Marilyn May is coming back. I, I think I mentioned that she'll be at uh, fifty-four below this mm-hmm. this coming weekend, and it's her uh, the Monday night show will be her actual ninety-fifth birthday. Mm. So I don't think you'll get a ticket to that, but uh, if you can, she's there from uh, I think Friday through Monday, uh, and then and then she'll be back again in May if you if you can't get a ticket to that one. So uh, she's. She's obviously on fire now and a really, really big star <laughs> uh, after the Carnegie Hall. <laughs> on fire. Hall. Somebody put her out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't put her out. <laughs> so great, Michael. And you're going to go see it? I bought a ticket, yeah, for uh, the Saturday night performance. Whatever happened with the uh, the Diamond series? Did that wrap up? Did that keep going? Oh, no, I think that I'm... In the midst of it, or...? Well, I think it continues. I, I think that that you know, whenever they get a, a, a big headliner, they they, they sometimes call it the Diamond Series. But I would think Marilyn would be a Diamond Series. You know? Yeah, but I think she she doesn't need. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, she's so just she's just an institution there. So that you know, and she always sells out anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can support Broadway Radio by uh, by supporting us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Radio. And help us bring more shows to you, like uh, This Week on Broadway, Today on Broadway, Jan's All the Drama, uh, Lauren Class Schneider's uh, Class Notes, and all the other stuff that we do here every day at Broadway Radio. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, those are all other places you can get us. And we have links to some of the things we've talked about today in the show notes, as well as, uh, as, well as contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me. All right, so Peter... What do we have in, uh, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? What musical mentions the Duchess of Windsor, Leonard Bernstein, Ray Charles, Malcolm X, Adam Clayton Powell, and Jesus Christ? Well, <laughs> Lee Adams in Golden Boy, the 1964 musical, mentioned the Duchess in Colorful. That's the name of the song. Bernstein, um, Bernstein and Charles in This is the Life. Malcolm and Powell and Don't Forget 127th Street and Jesus specifically Jesus H. Christ, in Everything's Great. Tony Janicki got up before the podcast ended. He was quickly followed by Paul Witte, who answered for the first time in weeks because he's been busy expanding his business that purveys outdoor equipment. So do drop in either location 
if you're in Wichita. They were followed by Arthur Robinson, Jack Leshner, Brigadude, Isaac Blevins, and Joanna Abizi. This week's question. There's a song in which the musical's sole female performer mentions three musical theater characters, a young Puerto Rican woman, a Jewish father, and an African-American who's a native of South Carolina. What's the song? From what musical does it come? What's the name of the character who sings it? And who are the three characters mentioned? Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. Let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, we opened last week's podcast with some music from Sweeney Todd, but since, as I said, it's one of my all-time favorites, I figured we'd use some more music from it. And specifically, um, two tracks from Barbara Streisand's The Broadway Album, which was released in 1985. And I'll never forget what a phenomenon that was, because, of course, Streisand started out on Broadway, and then she made tons of albums in which she sang lots of Broadway songs. And then the rock era happened and she decided to climb aboard that, that wagon uh, and was very successful at it uh, for quite some time. But then when she started to age out of that, I guess she, she thought, you know, maybe I'll go back (laughs) to Broadway. And um, so uh, that album includes several songs by Stephen Sondheim. And our opener is um, uh, Pretty Women, uh, which on the album is actually a a mini medley. It starts with that song and then goes into The Ladies Who Lunch, which I always thought was very clever. Uh, uh, But we're just, uh, we included just the Pretty Women section as our opener. And for the closer, uh, Streisand's really, really lovely recording of Not While I'm Around from Sweeney Todd. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Demons are prowling everywhere nowadays. I'll send them howling. I don't I've got ways No one's gonna hurt you No one's gonna dare Others can desert you Not to worry, whistle, I'll be Can deserve